Okay, with all of that, let us now quiet our hearts, pray to the Lord for light this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray to you this morning for light. On this day when we think of stars, we think of things that guide us, we are mindful that your word is a lamp unto our feet. So, Lord, we are mindful that Christ is the light of the world. And so we pray that we would see light this morning, that we would see our way, that you would use your word to challenge us, to comfort us, and to direct and guide us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning on this Epiphany Sunday is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The title of the message is, What's Up with the Magi? What's up with these guys? Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12, hear now the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And they heard, they had heard, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a look at uh, a couple of these images here this morning. If you could put up that first slide this morning. Take a look at that. Take a look at the next one as well. You can take those down. Those are both ancient images. They're found in the catacomb of Priscilla. It's in Italy. It was discovered in the 16th century, but those paintings, those images you saw, they go back to the 3rd century. As you probably gathered from them, there are images of the nativity scene as we would refer to it. They are images of three men bestowing gifts upon our King, upon Jesus. They are, of course, images of those that we call, as Heidi mentioned, by a variety of names, the kings, 
the magi, the astrologers, the wise men, they are captivating figures, aren't they? They've captivated Christians throughout the centuries. Even there in the third century, something sparked some ancient person to do that type of art, to particularly reference these three people. They have captivated the imagination of people. They are enigmatic figures. Think about that for a moment. They're only here in Matthew's account of the Nativity. They enter the narrative from this mysterious place, right? We're just told from the east. And they leave just as mysteriously, don't they? They go back by another route. We're not even told. Where did they go? What road did they take? Matthew Skinner writes this. He says, The appearance of the Magi constitutes one of the most peculiar stories in the Gospels. Unnamed, unnumbered, and guided by stars, the travelers enter and exit the narrative surrounded in mystery. They're captivating figures, aren't they? They capture one's imagination. As a child, we had this kind of uh, large crash or nativity scene in our house. It was really on a kind of a larger scale, and it was, it was made by, I think it was my grandfather that made it. It was, it was you know, well built. It had straw in it and all this stuff, and we had all these figures, these ceramic figures of the personages of the nativity. They were maybe 10, 12 inches tall. These were like big things that always captivated me that we had this, and uh, you know, I had often play with the figures of the nativity scene, kind of like I did with my Star Wars figures, and <laughs> you know, I'd make up little things with them. And uh, to be totally honest, the ones that captured my imagination the most were not Mary and Joseph and Jesus. It was those three dudes with their cool hats, right? They're kind of like hipsters, like a jazz trio. Like, who are these guys? That's the ones I wanted to play with. They're mysterious. They captivate captivate your mind. They still do. On Friday, there was a parade in New York City. The parade of the Three Kings. The Three Kings parade was there. They're a source of celebration. They're a source of humor. There's a lot of jokes around them. I don't know if you heard that Congress determined that they had to cancel their planned live nativity over the holiday season, and it wasn't for religious reasons, they just couldn't find three wise men. I got another one for you. (laughs) This is my favorite one. What did the third wise man say after his friends had already presented gold and frankincense? But wait, there's myrrh. You're still supposed to groan at those, but I I like that you laugh at them. I appreciate it. You're kind to me. These three figures, right? They are captivating. They inspire celebration, humor, poetry. Think of T.S. Eliot's amazing poem, The Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey and such a long journey. Art, poetry, humor, parades. These guys captivate the imagination. They're seemingly out of place, aren't they? You have this Gospel of Matthew with all of this historical stuff, Herod, you know, and Caesars, and the places that we know, like Samaria and Judea and Palestine, 
And the, really the only outsiders in that story are the occupying Romans. But then these three come in like aliens from out of space. They come into this story of the nativity. And the question that they raise in our minds is why? Why are they here? Why did Matthew include them in the story? What's the purpose what would that have communicated to those of old, those in Matthew's time, his original readers, and what should it communicate to us now? What is their significance? What is up with the Magi? That's the question I want to answer this morning as we look at the Scripture. Why are they here? And the best way, I think, to answer that is by looking at Scripture itself, using the analogy of faith. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that makes sense from a variety of perspectives. After all, it is the inspired Word of God. Good place to go. But secondly, also in this case, it captures well the mindset of Matthew. The milieu of Matthew. This is his Word. Right? This is his world. Matthew would have understood the Magi in terms of the world of the Scripture. So let's go to the Scriptures and consider whether we can understand something about why they're here, what they signify, what they mean to us. And I want to credit the work of Eric Vandenichel, who wrote a wonderful book uh, entitled Magi, The Magi, uh, Eric Vandenichel. I relied heavily on that book in the preparation of this uh, sermon. I want to give him due and appropriate uh, credit for his insights. Okay, so let's think about it. Let's think about the Magi, let's look at the Scriptures, and let's begin where we should begin in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament with which Matthew would have been familiar. Does anyone know where Magi appear in the Old Testament? Anyone take a guess what book of the Bible? Woo, you guys are good. Daniel. Yes, in the book of Daniel we find Magi. Now, one of the things uh, about the Hebrew Scriptures is that most of the New Testament writers weren't really working with the Hebrew Scriptures. They were using a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that's known as the Septuagint. So one of the things we can do is we can look for the Greek word for Magi, which is Magoi or Magoi, and we can find it in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the place we find it, the only place we find it, is in the book of Daniel. It appears there several times in the book of Daniel. Daniel records this, and it comes up in the context of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You remember the basic story of the book of Daniel. Daniel is taken into captivity, into exile, into Babylon, right? He's forced to go there. He ends up uh, in, in Babylon, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream, and he's troubled by that dream. And so what does he do? Well, we're told in Daniel chapter 2, Verse 1 through 3, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled, he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the magi, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell them what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, I want to know what it means. He wanted his dreams interpreted, and so he called together the magi. Curiously, he offers them a reward. Daniel chapter 2, verse 6. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts 
and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Think about that for a moment. There we have magi, there we have a king, and there we have gifts. We should find that familiar. So there we are in Daniel. They're called together. And of course, we know how that story ends. All of these wise counselors, these magi that are brought in, these Chaldeans who come to the king, they can't interpret the dream at all. They tell the king, no one on earth could do this. And then Daniel comes in and Daniel interprets the dream. Of course, Daniel says, it's not me. It is God that provided this interpretation And some of you may be thinking of another story in the Old Testament that really parallels that almost identically in the basic outline, the story of Joseph, a very similar story of how Joseph is taken out, exiled in Egypt, how he is there when Pharaoh has these dreams that can't be interpreted, and all the, they don't use the word magi there, but all of these counselors come around Pharaoh, try to interpret, they can't do it. Joseph's the one who does it. God gives him the interpretation, a very similar accounting of it. The magi are those who are around the king or the Pharaoh. So what do we learn from that account? That use of magi in the Old Testament that certainly would have been in the mind of Matthew. Well, in Van den Eichel's book, he says there's a few things. First, magi are clearly viewed as wise people. They are thought of as professional people. We might think of them as uh, similar to something like a modern-day academic or a scientist or like the President's Council of Economic Advisors, these kind of skilled people who are brought in to give wisdom and truth and guidance to leaders. And thirdly and most importantly, the Magi were courtiers of the king. They were located as part of the court of the king. That's where they were found there. They were in the sphere of power, of influence of the king. They orbited and served the king. That's what we learn about the Magi from the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Do we find them there? There's one book where we do find them. Anyone know what book we find Magi in in the New Testament? Nobody wants to take a guess. Acts. Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, it's in the book of Acts. It's a very different type of accounting. Twice in the book of Acts, there are those, it's the same kind of root word of magi, those who are sorcerers or magicians. Simon is the first one that comes to us in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Simon's a very different type of person than those Old Testament Chaldeans that came around Nebuchadnezzar. Simon was a kind of a self-promoter, a charlatan, if you will. He liked to wow the crowds, and that's what he did. He was uh, often referred to as a magician, a sorcerer, but the word there is, is magi, a very similar idea. And then Philip and uh, it comes to town there preaching and performing signs in Samaria. And Simon and many others see the power of the gospel and they're changed. And Simon himself becomes a believer and is baptized. 
And later, Peter and John come, and they come and lay their hands on people, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and Simon witnesses the manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does he want? He wants it. He wants that power for himself, and he's willing to pay for it. He offers money for it, and of course, he gets a smackdown from Peter and John, and he repents in that story in Acts. The other place in the book of Acts where we find Magi used is with Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas are in Cyprus. They're doing ministry there. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 13, 6 and 7. They, that is Paul and Barnabas, traveled through the whole island of Cyprus until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer, a Jewish magi, and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So there's Paul and Barnabas in Cyprus. They want to go and have an audience with Sergius Paulus, who is the ruler of the region of the area. And Bar-Jesus works as the counselor to Sergius Paulus. He has the ear of the king, if you will. And he wanted to keep that power of the ear of the king. And he tried to prevent Paul and Barnabas from going there. He tried to refuse their desire to have an audience with Sergius Paulus. And Paul finds out about that. He's not too happy about it. He puts a smack down on Bar-Jesus. He gets blinded because of it. But Paul shows this power of the Spirit of God. And it was that manifestation of the power of God, the blinding of Bar-Jesus, that leads Sergius Paulus to believe. He sees the power of God and believes Acts 13:12 when the proconsul saw what had happened he believed So what do we get from that account of the New Testament a very different one well, what strikes us is how negative Magi are portrayed in the book of Acts, right? So there's a difference there with the Old Testament, with Matthew, where there's a positive spin. It's hard to pin these people down. They're enigmatic, they're good and bad, they're skilled and they're charlatans. But there are some commonalities. And did you take note of those commonalities the, between the depictions in Daniel and in Matthew and Acts? I think there are two, and Van den Eichel points these out in his book. First one is this, magi are outsiders. They're outsiders, at least from the perspective of the people of Israel. They're outsiders to the kingdom of God. They're those around Pharaoh in Egypt. They're those around Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. They're those like Bar-Jesus and Simon. They're outside of the kingdom of God looking in on it. They're outsiders. They're exotic. In the literal meaning of that word, they're foreign. They're out of the norm. It's interesting in, in the book, Van den Eichel talks about those art pieces I showed you in the beginning and how the one striking feature of the Magi in those portraits, which don't have faces on them, right, there is the hats. If you look at those, there are hats on these people. What is that there for? It's this indication they're not from around here. They were outsiders. Outsiders to the kingdom of God. The second thing he mentions is that they, Magi, are always around power. 
around the sphere of power, desiring power, orbiting the throne of power, around the manifestation of power. Van den Eichel writes this in the book, what all these magoi share is an attraction to people in positions of power. Simon is drawn to the apostles. Bar-Jesus is introduced alongside the proconsul of Cyprus. And the magoi and Daniel are members of the king's court. They are royal groupies. Right? They want to be around power. Outsiders who want to be around power. And this is upheld, as he notes in the book, by extra-biblical literature as well, contemporaneous literature. This are the, these are the things that you see in the Magi. Outsiders, foreign, exotic, faraway places, longing to be around power. Okay. So what does that tell us about what's up with the Magi? What does that tell us about the significance of Magi? Why they are included here in this story? What that would have meant to his original audience, Matthew? And what that means to us today? Well, I think there are two very important truths. Two truths communicated to us through these Magi. And I want you to think about these two this morning. Think about what they might mean for your life as a Christian right now today. For us as a church today. Two truths. The first is this. The Magi remind us. They remind we insiders that the kingdom of God is for outsiders. First truth. Magi remind insiders that the kingdom of God is for outsiders. The story of the Magi, I am convinced, is a bracketing, is a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. Matthew begins his gospel with the nativity. We find those Magi, and it ends, of course, with the Great Commission. I think Matthew is doing this inclusio, this book ending. He's reminding an audience to whom he wrote, primarily a Jewish audience, that while this is the King of the Jews, He's also the King of the world. He has come not just for you, but for those who are far off. And here, Matthew sets the stage. He puts the little foreshadowing. I love that in films. Don't you, when you watch a film, I, I mentioned the holdovers. I watched this film, and the, you know, the guy had this bottle of Remy Martin on the desk, uh, the, the, the headmaster of this school, and there was a little, you know, they, they gave some dialogue to it. And I just knew that that bottle of Remy Martin was going to come back in in somewhere, and it did at the very end of the movie. That's what Matthew's doing here. He's reminding us, he's reminding them. That the kingdom of God is for outsiders. That there is a missional aspect to the kingdom of God and we need to grasp it. And all the insiders who heard this need to be reminded of the outsiders. And we need to be reminded of the outsiders. Those looking out, looking in from the outside I should say. Those who think they are wise, like the Chaldeans. Those who are given to being full of self-promotion, uh, like the Simon. 
Those who are just wondering, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? The Magi remind us that the Christ is a gift to the world. He's for the world. And he wants us to be for the world. He wants us to be something and a place that attracts people, not repels them, that draws people into the kingdom of God. He, these magi, they, they suggest to us what Jesus later makes a command to us. Go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Epiphany is about mission. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ, and He has incorporated, called, drafted us into sharing that good news of attracting outsiders to become insiders. The Magi is a story about outsiders becoming insiders. Chad Ashby wrote this great little piece in the Christianity Today about the Magi. One of the points he makes in there, which I really like, is how the Magi represents an inversion of the Old Testament stories. If you think about it, Joseph, what happens to him? He's exiled out of Israel into Egypt, and that's where he meets the Magi of his day. Daniel, exiled out of Israel into Babylon. There he meets the Magi. But in Matthew, it's the inverse. It's those who are far off, who are exiled into the kingdom of God, brought near to the Christ. They come and meet with Him. He writes, at Jesus' birth, recognize how the tables have turned. This time a star led the Magi into exile. Not into bondage, but into the gospel of glorious liberty of Jesus Christ. That is what the Magi tell us. The kingdom of God is for outsiders. So here, you know, we make these New Year resolution. Make an epiphany resolution. Make it your resolution to manifest the presence of God in an attractive way that people would be drawn. Drawn into the King. And I would ask you, and I would challenge you, I know it's crazy, but you might even this year be bold enough to invite someone to come to church. And I know you might give me a lot of excuses. Well, I'm worried they're going to be offended by this, they're going to be offended by that. Don't worry about it. Let God take care of things. Believe again that the Word of God can really transform people. That there really is a King. And that He's worthy of worship. The first truth we learn from the Magi is that the kingdom of God is for outsiders, not just insiders. The second truth and the final one this morning is this, and it relates a little bit to what I was saying at the end of the first one. The Magi remind us that the kingdom of God is powerful. That the kingdom of God is powerful. We've seen that. We surveyed the Scriptures. They're always around power. Magi are drawn to power. And they made their journey to Jesus because there was the King. There was the power. Do you believe in the power of the kingdom of God? Amen. <laughs> At least one of you does. <laughs> right? They were willing to make a journey, an arduous journey, 
because they believed in the power of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why isn't he ashamed of it? It's a pretty shameful thing. Sometimes I feel ashamed of it. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God. I read an article this week about preaching, you know, and preaching singles versus home runs and all that kind of thing. And one of the things this guy was trying to tell pastors is, you're giving people the wrong idea if all you're trying to do is hit a home run every time you're up to the plate. And I feel that. I feel that a lot myself. Maybe you don't think I do that, but you know, strike out a lot. But uh, the Dave Kingman of sermons. Uh, the, uh, so, but the, somebody got that reference. In the, punter, you got that, right? Home run or strikeout, right? But his point was, it's the Word of God. It's not the preacher. Right? It's the Word of God. Preach it. Exegete it. Share it. You don't have to hit a home run. God hits the home run. Do you believe that? Do you believe in the power of the kingdom of God? Much of the church has lost its belief in the power of the kingdom of God. Leander Keck, in an article in, in um, Christianity Today, talked about this. He, uh, a professor emeritus at Yale Divinity, a mainliner himself. He's part of the, the mainline church. And he talks about how much the power of God has been lost in the mainline church. He wrote this. He said, I do not know. Why so much of the mainline Protestantism has become a joyless religion. Perhaps we are more impressed. Listen to what he says. Perhaps we are more impressed by the problems of the world than by the power of God. Isn't that indicative of most of mainline preaching? It's about the problems of the world rather than the power of God. Not that those problems aren't significant. Not that they shouldn't be addressed by the church. But they're more impressed by that. And the power of the gospel. He goes on, perhaps we've become so secular that we indeed think that now everything depends on us that surely ought to make us depressed. Perhaps we have simply gotten bored with a boring God whom we substituted for the God of the Bible. Is that indicative of your faith? Is your God boring? Have you done that? Have you substituted? Have you robbed the gospel of its mystique, its power, its royalty, democratized it, modernized it, squeezed out of it all of its regal power. And if you think I'm picking on the mainline liberal church, I'm not just picking on them because evangelicals, conservative Christians, do the exact same thing as the mainline. Evangelicalism is also more impressed by the problems of the world as they see them than by the power of God. You can go to evangelical churches, they're doing the same thing. They're preaching the sermon about whatever the problem is that finds its way on whatever kind of evangelical little uh, silo that's out there, some concern, a social concern, right? That's what people preach, left and right. Paul said, gospel. I am not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Do you believe in the power of God? So my second epiphany resolution for you this morning is to believe again. Let yourself believe in the power of God, in the mystery of word and sacrament and what we do, that there's actually power in this. 
That God is powerful. That His ordinary means of grace are extraordinary in their power. Reclaim that royal sense of the gospel. It's mystique. It's exotic mystique. It's arcane mystique. The mystique of liturgy and creed. Stop trying to modernize the kingdom of God. Let what is royal be royal. Let me close with this illustration. Recently, I watched the sixth and final season of The Crown on Netflix. Some of you probably watched that too. And it's totally a dramatization, right? So what I'm saying involves historical personages, but they likely are not historically accurate about them. But there's perhaps enough truth in the theme and the structure of things. So as I say this, uh, know that as a caveat. The series, of course, focuses on Queen Elizabeth and about the idea of royalty and monarchy itself over time. And of course, as we get to the end, the sixth season, we're in modern times. And part of the theme of that last season is the pressure on the monarchy to modernize, to democratize, to strip itself, to eviscerate the monarchy of what makes it royal. Relate to the culture. Relate to modern times. That's how you're going to save the monarchy, by stripping it of its royalty. And there's this great scene where Queen Elizabeth is talking with Tony Blair, who kind of epitomizes this kind of popular, modern, intellectual leader, who, by the way, leads people into war in Iraq. And, he, and Tony Blair, she kind of seeks him because she's, he's so popular, she's declining in popularity about how he, she should modernize, what she should do to the monarchy, and he comes in with all of these suggestions, you know, some of them reasonable and good, some of them are about get rid of all this kind of royal trappings, get rid of the royal bargemaster, the Lord High Admiral of the Wash, and the Warden of the Swans. And there's this great scene where she's interviewing these people in this tradition who've been doing this for centuries, who put this love in their work, who do these things that seem senseless and, and, and kind of uh, you know, superfluous, uh, but are uh, these parts of the trappings of royalties. And when he, when he says to her, you know, get rid of the warden of the swans, she looks at him and bristles and she says, well, someone needs to oversee the swans. And she ultimately rejects in the story, in the account, she rejects his recommendations of, to modernize the monarchy. She thinks that it will remove and eliminate its mystique, its meaning, its power. And at one point she says this, she says, this is our duty. This is our duty to lift people up and transport them to another realm, not bring them down to earth and remind them of what they already have. Amen. You could say that's the calling of the church. The power is not in the problems. The power is in God. Our duty is to lift people up and transport them to another realm, to remind them about the kingdom and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. Because someone has to look after the swans. Someone has to uphold the royalty that is King Jesus. So like the Magi this morning, believe again. Come and worship the King because you believe that there is power there 
in Him and His kingdom. A kingdom that's like a mustard seed that grows and fills all the earth. A kingdom that can transform people, who can bring dead people back to life. Spiritually and literally. Believe in the power of God like the Magi who were changed. As, as Eliot concludes his poem, we return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. There's power in Christ the King. Believe it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank You for the glory, the kingdom, the power of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we thank You. We thank You for light and dark places. We thank You for outsiders. Father, help us to be like the Magi. Help us not run to Herod, to seek power in Herod. But let us be found around the king in the court of the king where power really is, where Jesus is. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you?